Anthony Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And this is episode 99. I have no clue what I'm going to talk about today, but I suppose I should start with the shoutouts. So I'd like to thank the following people for following the show on Twitter. Joan Allen. Not that Joan Allen, I think. Pretty sure. Ape Games. E. Del Boy, I think that's how you pronounce it. Or maybe it's Del Bois, maybe it's French. But I like the kind of tagline he has on his Twitter profile. Speak plainly and openly about the absurdity of religious beliefs. Treat it with contempt and ridicule. The contempt and ridicule might be a little strong um, for me personally, but I like this speak um, plainly and openly about the absurdity of religious beliefs. But then again, I'm a big Christopher Hitchens fan, and Hitch never pulled any punches. Uh, He often spoke about religion (laughs) with contempt and ridicule, especially when challenging religious hypocrisy and some of the uglier beliefs sometimes associated with um, particular religions. Anyway, back to the Twitter shoutouts. Emmanuel Francis, and it's kind of funny, Emmanuel Francis is a believer And I think I either instigated or got caught in the middle of some kind of Twitter-based flame war (laughs) between Delbois or Delboy and Emmanuel Francis. A fellow non-believer had tweeted something about um, mortality or the fear of death on Twitter. And I responded with something to the effect of, when I was younger, I used to fear death, but the older I get, the more that I see there's a kind of poetry to being transient. And I've talked about that on the show before. I think when you first experience that loss of God, you know, when you really start to doubt, going from this worldview that you're probably indoctrinated um, into that says there's a literal creator God who created you and that there's some kind of afterlife awaiting you upon your death, going from that, to kind of staring into the abyss and realizing that there may not be a God and that there may not be an afterlife. That can be very daunting. It can be very disturbing. And the idea of non-existence, the um, idea of ceasing to be, for a long time, it really did deeply disturb me. But it's true, the older I get, the less I... um, I care about not being immortal or eternal. Uh, And there is a kind of poetry to the idea of being just like a um, kind of like a star that shines for a while, then goes back out again. Um, And I think, as I said in the show recently, you know, I'm I'm afraid of dying. I'm afraid of the um, the pain, the discomfort and the fear that's probably involved in the dying process or in some cases can be. Um, but I'm not afraid of being dead. The idea of my own non-existence, I can honestly say, does not bother me whatsoever. It took me a while to get there, but I got there. And as I also recently admit on the show, yeah, the idea of the people I care about no longer being around, the idea of the people I care about passing away, that still deeply disturbs me. But the thought of my own non-existence. Nah, not looking forward to uh, dying anytime soon. (laughs) But the idea of death, of being dead, uh, that's not a big issue for me anymore. 
And for those of you out there who perhaps haven't become as inured yet to the idea of your own um, mortality or non-existence, I apologize if I seem like I'm being morose or overly morbid. Definitely not my attention. And in fact, uh, I actually get kind of a joy out of dwelling on this stuff. Um, I I like to at least believe I'm a naturally philosophical person. And for me, it's kind of invigorating to contemplate the big questions and to uh, contemplate life and death and the, uh, the meaning of it all. Can't believe it. Not even done with the shout-outs yet. I'm already getting overly philosophical. Uh, But anyway, let me finish the uh, Twitter shout-outs. Jason White, Ash Community, and it looks like Ash stands for Atheism, Secularism, and Humanism. Pretty cool. And Jessica. Just Jessica. All right. And I recently just discovered a brand-new iTunes review. Well, actually, it was left on... February 16th. I'm just getting around to it now. And uh, it looks like is from friend of the show, Wade Cardall. All right, man. He gave me five stars. I'll read that review now. Phil really is a great voice in the secular movement. He has a great everyman approach to questions that lead people to doubt. I don't mean to say he's not smart. He's quite intelligent and well thought out. I just mean to say his podcast is very relatable and a welcome point of view. Oh, thank you, Wade. That's awesome. I appreciate that very much. And um, if I could get a little sappy for a moment, uh, whenever I find one of these iTunes reviews, it always makes me feel uh, so thankful for you guys and um, the way that you take time to encourage me and leave feedback. So we're on episode 99 now, and I've always been kind of a sensitive person, and I remember when I first felt compelled to start the podcast, I think one of my biggest fears maybe was that I was going to face this kind of deluge of um, internet, you know, criticism and cruelty. We all know how infamous um, places like YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook can be when it comes to people mercilessly bashing other people, uh, trying to tear them down verbally or whatever. And so maybe that was one of my biggest fears that the podcast wouldn't be received well, and I'd have people attacking me every which way. And it uh, blows my mind. If I was a religious person, I might be tempted to say I feel blessed uh, that people have been so kind so far on the internet. And this is something I pointed out before. If you look at big name podcasts, you know, it could be like Anderson Cooper's podcast or whatever. Sometimes those will have two and a half, three stars or whatever. And here I am, basically a nobody, still kind of trying to claw my way out of my own dark corner of the internet. And um, I have like four and a half stars. All the reviews have basically been positive. There's only pretty much two subpar reviews. It's it's very funny. Uh, One of them is from me. When I first started the podcast, I wanted to get the ball rolling, so I tried to anonymously leave myself a review. Um, only to discover that by default, iTunes put like my name under the review, I think. And uh, I said something like, decent start. And I I don't know if I gave myself two and a half stars or if 
if iTunes detects that you're leaving yourself a review, maybe they have the rating you tried to leave yourself or something. But apparently I gave myself like two and a half stars. And then there was one other person who gave me one star. Um, and it sounds like judging by the review that they were just trying to promote their own podcast and kind of trying to, uh, take out the competition, but all in all, um, other than that, the reviews have all been like four or five stars. It just blows me away. It's very humbling. And even on YouTube, uh, where people can be quite nasty at times, the comments and whatnot have been generally positive. I think I mentioned it on the show before that the most hostility I ever faced on YouTube was after posting an episode of the show that had to do with uh, Dr. Eben Alexander's near-death experience claims. I don't know if you're familiar or if you remember him, but it might have been like a year ago now or something. There's this Harvard uh, neurosurgeon who claimed to have had a uh, near-death experience, and he wrote a book about it called Proof of Heaven. And he claimed that, I don't know if it was the neocortex, but he said something about um, there was no activity in the part of the brain responsible for higher reasoning, and he shouldn't have been able to have still been conscious and to experience what he experienced. And he kind of points to that as proof that his near-death experience wasn't uh, a product of his um, brain, but that it was a genuine spiritual experience. And other people have pointed out, well, if your neocortex wasn't active, you'd probably be dead um, or something like that. And people also pointed out that the near-death experience might not have happened necessarily during the middle of his journey when his brain was the most inactive, but it could have been a type of hallucination or altered state that he experienced as he was entering the coma or as he was leaving the coma. I believe in fairness, he claims that after the fact, he tried to put all the puzzle pieces together to kind of determine when the near-death experience would have happened. And he claimed that um, it happened when his brain should have been offline or something like that. But anyway, uh, I did one or two episodes on the subject, and I don't think that I was necessarily disrespectful. I think I handled it the same way I handle most subject matter on the show. And I just tried to logically approach his claims that he had a near-death experience. And I didn't, I tried to give him the benefit of the doubt. I didn't try to suggest that he was lying. He probably did have some kind of profound, highly emotional, uh, even transcendent. And by transcendent, I don't mean transcending this realm to another, but um, transcending a normal mode of consciousness to um, a kind of uh, altered state of consciousness. He, he probably did have some kind of profound experience that really moved him and altered his worldview. But that doesn't mean that the experience was necessarily supernatural or spiritual. And like all near-death experiences, if you really think about it, at the end of the day, all that we have to go on is basically anecdotal evidence. We have one person's story. We weren't inside his diseased brain (laughs) with him to uh, see firsthand what he was experiencing. Um, So all we can do is take his word for it that these things happened. And like I said, I'm not saying he was lying, but 
it could have been something similar to the near-death experiences that people claim to have um, when they briefly die and are brought back by medical means. You know, there's the kind of cliche or stereotypical claims about a tunnel of light, meeting up with deceased uh, loved ones, etc. And I guess what kind of separates Eben Alexander's case from your average near-death experience case is that I think he was out for at least a month or something like that. Um, He had uh, supposedly contracted bacterial meningitis in the brain, and um, he either slipped into a coma or they induced a coma. Uh, I forget which it is at this point. It's been a while since I covered the story. And he had a very colorful experience where he talks about something about all these kind of almost alien-like creatures and these psychedelic visions of butterflies and all all sorts of wild stuff that you don't hear in the kind of plain vanilla tunnel of light uh, NDE accounts. And for me, just judging on how the world seems to work and from what we know about the brain, uh, my guess is, you know, if something seems too good to be true, it probably is. Um, All of us would probably like to believe that when we die, we go to this hyper-vivid, wonderful, spiritually intense world. Um, Rather than that, we just rot inside a coffin or whatever, you know? But from what we know of the brain, like I keep repeating on the show, it seems to me that consciousness is an emergent property. We know the brain is an complex organ composed of different parts that have different functions damage a part and you damage um the corresponding function or you can um such as if you damage the frontal lobe you can damage impulse control um damage another part you can affect speech or memory or vision uh, emotion so it seems like all those things that we consider defining us as individuals, defining us as uh, human, that people often equate with the soul, like um, perception, thought, emotion, self-reflection. All those things, when you break it down, seem to be products of the meat brain. So it makes sense that when the brain goes, we go. Um, And this kind of goes to what I was talking about at the beginning of the show about becoming a nerd to the idea of your own death. And uh, if you haven't yet, then obviously the idea of contemplating just going out like a lamp that's been unplugged when the when the brain dies, that can be deeply disturbing. And I can understand why people would rather believe that we go on forever, that um, death is yet the beginning of some kind of grander, and um, higher spiritual existence or something like that. So when you kind of ask me, you know, to kind of choose between, okay, did Dr. Eben Alexander have a spiritual experience where his spirit left the body and went into some other magical realm and um, he had all these wild experiences, then the spirit came back to the body and that consciousness can live outside the brain and all that. If you ask me, to choose between that or that the brain's responsible for consciousness and that he probably had some kind of wild um, experience while in an altered state of consciousness, either while slipping into the coma or coming out of it. And he might have been confused about at what point during the coma 
the experience took place and whether or not the condition of his brain would have allowed him to experience a kind of hallucination or not. Um, well, even though it might not be as cherry and fanciful, I'm going to go with the, the latter option that most likely the experience was a product of his brain. And I know, I know he's a, a neurosurgeon, uh, so he knows a hell of a lot more about the brain than I do. But I think he's also kind of emotionally invested, and he's the guy who had the experience. And I don't doubt that near-death experiences can be very emotional and very transformative, and they probably seem incredibly real, too. This is kind of a weird thing to admit on the show. I don't think I've ever really talked about it before. But I have members of my own family. I'm not going to out them, you know, by name or whatever. But I'll just say relatives, uh, family members who've wrestled with um, mental illness involving having uh, auditory and visual hallucinations. And from dealing with people like that firsthand, I kind of learned what experts will also tell you, that hallucinations can be so real that even after you treat the person with medicine and you kind of get them stable again and uh, stop the hallucinations, they will still insist that those hallucinations that they had in the past were real, that they pretty much seem just as real and concrete to them as any other experience. So I have no doubt that things like near-death experiences can seem very, very real and they can be very, very powerful. And I even think if they get you to change your outlook on life for the better, you know, that's good too. That's positive. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the experiences were real and that um, some divine essence within you, the, the soul, the psyche, consciousness or whatever, actually left your physical body and re-entered. Um, my guess is those things are products of the brain. If I had to choose between them being supernatural in nature or there being a neurological explanation. I'm going to go with the neurological explanation. If anyone out there has any concrete empirical proof that they are genuine spiritual experiences, hey, I'm listening, you know. But until then, I'm going to go with the more logical explanation. But that reminds me of something I've been meaning to talk about ever since I viewed the Ken Ham-Bill Nye debate. I know I covered that debate a lot, but there's... One point that kind of got under my skin that I never addressed on the show, it might have been there the end of the debate when audience members were invited to ask the uh, participants questions and the moderator had some uh, cards from audience members and an audience member asked something to the effect of how do you explain the mystery of consciousness or something like that. And Bill Nye kind of was very quick to throw his hands up in the air and say, we don't know. <laughs> and then someone asked a similar question, and once again he answered, we don't know. And I'm like, really, man? That's the best you can come up with? I, I know I'm not a scientist, but I think that even if we don't yet understand the whole picture of how consciousness works, I think just our knowledge of the brain alone gives us some basic idea. And this is one of those cases where maybe you understand something um, 
in your head, but you have trouble verbalizing it quite right. For years now, I've kind of had this idea in my head that makes sense. And we know that consciousness seems to be an emergent property of the brain and biological life in general seems to be um, evolution. Biological evolution seems to be an emergent property. And uh, once again, emergent property just means something that's complex that comes about from simple processes or processes. And we know that some of the most rudimentary life were these almost flatworm type of creatures that had or, or have, you know, there's still creatures like this around that have simple eye spots that help them detect light. Or we know that um, there's light sensitive cells that help a creature kind of seek out light. And then as creatures became more advanced, um, their sensory organs became more advanced. And we know that relatively primitive creatures like reptiles, their brain is pretty much the equivalent of what would be our brain stem that handles all the autonomic um, functions that you don't have to think about, like breathing, etc. Um, but we know almost like an onion, as creatures became more and more complex, the brain became more and more complex and almost gained these kind of evolutionary layers or parts that didn't exist in the brains of more primitive creatures. So it makes sense to me that as sensory organs become more complex, as the brain itself becomes more complex, that simple kind of sensory awareness might eventually give rise to a more heightened awareness that's even capable of self-awareness or self-reflection. Just going on what we know of the brain, what we know of the evolution of the brain, consciousness doesn't seem all that surprising to me. But anyway, I think what I'll do next is uh, I was recently watching the Young Turks and they were having a panel discussion about the reaction to... Uh, Aronofsky's upcoming Noah film. And it still blows my mind that the guy who directed Requiem for a Dream made a religious movie. Um, but I guess um, the movie kind of veers away from the biblical account a bit. And that has some Christians worried. Uh, and I guess even Ken Ham has a problem with the movie because uh, he claims that the movie depicts two of every animal going on to the ark. But of course, according to Ken Ham, it was really two of every kind of animal. And that's Ken Ham's weird way of trying to make the Noah story seem less preposterous. Because technically, two of every kind of animal, maybe two of every great cat instead of two of every lion, two of every tiger would narrow the uh, number down a little, so you wouldn't have to get quite as many animals on the ark. But, of course, it's still preposterous. And even um, even his th theory that it's two of every kind, as he calls it, of animal instead of two of every animal, it's a pretty darn weak argument because that's just his personal interpretation of what the word kind means. It could just as easily mean literally 
two of every kind of animal, every kind of great cat, every type of insect, whatever. We're dealing with mythology here and people trying to literally interpret mythology. But I guess as you would expect from Aronofsky, the film hasn't even been released yet. It's already mired in controversy. But I think I mentioned on the show how I had recently reread the Epic of Gilgamesh. I started rereading the Bible because I guess, you know, if you're going to be critical of something, you should make sure you understand it and are actually familiar with the subject matter first. I've read the entire New Testament in the past, and I've read a good deal of the Old Testament, but I'm trying to go back and become reacquainted with the uh, whole text. Um, The whole King James Bible, we'll see how far I make it. But I heard people talking about the flood narrative in in Genesis because I had recently reread it. I mean, that is a really short story. There's not a heck of a lot to it. And it does seem like kind of a weird idea to make a whole movie about one small little part of Genesis. But I guess it does have all the makings for a good story in a way. Drama, suspense, action, divine intervention, animals... It's kind of funny, though. I noticed from the trailer for the movie, it shows, like, Noah facing down, like, a uh, horde of bad guys. I don't know if they're extortionists or what the heck they are, um, local reavers, or I don't know what they're supposed to be. But it kind of reminded me, you know, it's a familiar theme you see in uh, action movies and stuff where you have the hesitant hero being harassed by the uh, local bullies or whatever. And it was just funny thinking about like taking a Bible story and putting these formulaic uh, movie elements into it. And once again, as always, whenever I see a uh, biblical movie filled with lily white Caucasians, you know, it always kind of uh, gets my ire up. I don't really buy into the kind of archaic uh, racial classifications, but um, depending on how you classify it, I think uh, Middle Easterners can be classified as Caucasian technically. But, you know, why say Caucasian? I mean, Anglo-looking dudes. (laughs) You have Russell Crowe as Noah. And it looked like the antagonist in the film also looked like white dudes. It's one thing I loved about uh, some of the reenactments and um, I think maybe it was the Discovery Channel. Like there was a documentary they did where they reconstructed an ancient uh, Jewish face that maybe would have been similar to what the face of the historical Jesus, if you believe in him, may have looked like. And they ended up with a very Semitic looking face with kind of kinky hair, etc. And also there was a whole series of documentaries I think Discovery might have done where they had reenactments of uh, you know New Testament events dealing with Jesus and the apostles and all the characters had a very Semitic look to them. I thought that was pretty cool because you know, we have all those Christian bookstore images of Jesus with the long, uh, almost blonde hair and uh, kind of Anglo-looking blue eyes even sometimes, or lily white virgin Mary with these really delicate Caucasian features and stuff. It kind of makes me wonder, and it's probably not completely fair, but I'd love to see the look on some white Christians' faces if they could like hop in a time machine and see what 
first century Jews actually looked like, what their reaction would be. But anyway, um, the reason why I'm talking about the Noah's Ark movie and all this is because Cenk Uger completely cracked me up, his response to some of the criticisms of the film. And um, it's a short clip. I think it's probably under two minutes, maybe even under a minute. Um, but I know I have some listeners who kind of have sensitive ears. So <laughs> there's some strong language in this clip. Uh, I think there's even one F-bomb. So just uh, to forewarn you, if you have sensitive ears and you're bothered by strong language, I almost said turn the channel now. What channel? It's a podcast. Uh, you might want to turn the podcast off now or skip ahead. Okay, but here's the clip. It's amazing, uh, which is, yeah, it might seem kind of harsh that God committed the greatest genocide known to man and killed everyone but eight people in that one family, right? But uh, you're interpreting the Bible wrong. But wait a minute, it is the Bible. That's literally That's what it says it in the Bible. And Noah, the movie, isn't saying that. The Bible's saying that. And I don't think that the movie, in fact, emphasizes that much at all. But and don't you celebrate the Bible? Aren't you, like, orgasmically happy about the bloodbath <laughs> that was the story of Noah's Ark where Everyone got murdered by your deity. Aren't you super happy about that? And then the in fact, that sh- that's exactly what I was going to go to next. They should do a sequel or, uh, to this movie, Noah's Ark, where brothers and sisters fuck each other to ad nauseum until we repopulate the earth. <laughs> Incest is best. So Noah's kids, put your sister to the test. Okay, that's the sequel, right? I mean, that's in your Bible. The whole pop, uh, uh, world population know. got populated because <laughs> of incest, right? I mean, I'm going to guess. I told you, strong language. I was going to do some news stories this week, but then I got caught up in waxing philosophical about Eben Alexander and near-death experiences and flatworms with eye spots or whatever. So um, I'm already past the half hour mark, so I'm probably going to call it a wrap for now. As always, you can like the show on Facebook. You can view the Weekend Out YouTube channel. You can listen on Stitcher. You can check out the archives of the latest episodes on Podbean. And while you're there, if you feel generous, you can donate to the show's upkeep using the PayPal widget on the official Weekend Out Podbean page. Did I leave anything out? Oh, yeah, you can follow the show on Twitter. Oh, or subscribe or review the show through iTunes. I think that's it. So as always, thanks for listening and until next week. <laughs>